This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. There are no easy solutions to Ontario's health care and inflation challenges. That was the message in yesterday's speech from the throne setting out the government's agenda. And it is a far cry from the slogan they got reelected on. Let's get it done. The promise to get it done. Some stakeholders are taking comfort from the number of references to healthcare and to nurses as an acknowledgement that they get it. And it is certainly a contrast to what we've heard from Health Minister Sylvia Jones that uh, this is not a crisis, even though, yeah, it's a problem. Some have started to predict, though, that all of this may be the beginning of the end for the four Tories. But where do we go from here, and can we expect any improvement anytime soon? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations, John McKetition, Conservative Strategist and President of Bradgate Research Group and Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Glad to be here, Libby. Thanks for having us back, Libby. Uh, Doris, um, let's begin with you. Well, you're a stakeholder, and I thought you've been sounding kind of quite conciliatory. Um, is that how you're feeling? I have been conciliatory. I know has been. Uh, a partner like no other in wanting to work together. And I was actually uh, thrilled with my president to be invited to the throne speech by the president and uh, sat in the, in the main parquet there. So I was really hopeful that in the acknowledgement of the throne speech about inflation like never before, four decades, the worst, and the acknowledgement, as you said, Lily, of nurses and other healthcare workers. And yes, they did kind of mention the challenges. Uh, I was really hopeful that get it done meant repeal Bill 124 because it's the, it's the only difference between Ontario and any other jurisdiction, whether it's in Canada or in the U.S., Lily. Uh, everybody is suffering a nursing shortage that is mega crisis, but Ontario has the added uh, burden of Bill 124, which then makes uh, very easy for nurses to say, you know, I had it on point somewhere else. So you're disappointed, but you somewhat conciliatory. Am I getting where you're at on this? Well, here is what I hope it will happen, Lily, and I hope the Premier will hear this uh, message and we have conveyed it to him. Uh, as you know, they're finishing negotiations with the teachers, uh, likely before the end of this month, I hope. I hope that after that, and I did ask um, Minister Jones to please meet with ONA, the Ontario Nurses Association, who does the negotiations for nursing, and get it done, get on with the negotiations before end of August, and then move on with fast negotiations so we don't continue to hemorrhage registered nurses and nurse practitioners and others outside of Ontario or to agencies that charge the hospitals and others, as you know, mega, mega money that is being paid anyways from taxpayers' dollars. Uh, you know, uh, speaking of those agencies, John McEtition, I mean, this is a, a kind of a, a detail, but there's been flack on Twitter. Apparently, one of those agencies is owned by the wife of Mike Harris. Is that kind of a fair uh, conclusion to draw that they're, you know, cronies and stuff like that? No, of course not. Uh, you know, <laughs> to to limit anybody's involvement in doing business with the government based on having a uh, political party membership or 
a past connection is just ludicrous. Then you'd have nobody ever participating in politics and nobody, uh, you know, helping solve the problem. So, but it's the kind of thing that when you've got two parties, uh, you know, with no leaders, so we have no real opposition, um, you know, the people that are there trying to, uh, you know, manage the deck chairs on the Titanic, if you will, are trying to, you know, change the subject and search for anything they can. So, you know, that's, that's annoying. It's not fair. It's unrealistic, but it's to be expected given where the Liberals and the NDP are right now. Bob, getting back to the bigger picture, did this throne speech send a message that uh, they get where people are at, or do they come off as being kind of out of touch? Uh, I, 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 I'm going to say neither at the moment. I think throne speeches are archaic, uh, and I think the only people who talk about uh, throne speeches are sort of Queen's Park insiders. It is an opportunity for the government to lay out kind of its its plans going forward. Uh, I thought that they did not a bad job on laying out plans for the economy and jobs. They sent out a clear uh, signal that we need some fiscal responsibility over the next period of time at all levels of government. Uh, they showed their interest in infrastructure. On health, they said, geez, it's important to us, but they didn't really put a path forward, uh, which they need to do over the next period of time. So uh, I would give it sort of mixed marks. But as thrown speeches go, uh, this wasn't a terrible one. It wasn't a great one. I would say it was uh, medium in the middle, and uh, I thought it was fine. Uh, yeah, but uh, it wasn't just a throne speech. They reintroduced the budget with two yes. two small changes, uh, and, you know, that's the blueprint. So would you say that shows that they're in or out of touch, Bob? Uh, you know, I would say that, look, let's be clear here. And I'm, I, I supported the other party. They got a majority and they got more seats than they did last time out. And both opposition leaders are gone. If you told me that was going to be the outcome of the election two uh, years ago, I might have said you were nuts. Uh, so, um, you know, he's got a clear mandate here. And I think that to suggest that he's out of touch on his first uh, uh, at bat, which is what a throne speech is, is ridiculous. He's reflecting the mandate that he just got from the people, and he got a substantial and a clear one. Okay, Doris, uh, do you agree that, uh, well, I mean, it's going to be a long time before they have to face another election, but it it seems like, uh, it seems to a lot of people, like he was kind of uh, behaving one way during the pandemic and perhaps somewhat differently now. Saying that he was out of touch in the sense that he did acknowledge the crisis, in my view, the throne speech. What is concerning is that when we speak, and our previous uh, speaker just said now, uh, fiscal responsibility, Bill 124 is resulting in the more unfiscally, (laughs) the more fiscally irresponsible way because we are paying double or triple the price to agencies. That's not fiscally responsible. And that's why the premium needs to be consistent on its messages. That bill is costing a huge amount of money to taxpayers that is being put in the wrong way, either to agencies that are making uh, huge profits and nurses that are making a lot of more money, but it's not their fault, and employers that are struggling and patients that don't have access to ERs or ICUs. So if we want to be fiscally responsible and socially responsible, then we need the access to healthcare. Uh, he also spoke, as you know, they spoke about ODSP, that already was speaking about ODSP, and we will be watching that finance not only gives the 5%, which is utterly insufficient, right? But also they did say that it will be uh, indexed to the cost of living, which right now is almost 8%. So we want for people on uh, people with disabilities that get ODSP to have the access to that eight percent, which will make it thirteen percent. Again, not sufficient to get them out of utter poverty. People that are ill out uh, utter poverty, uh, but at least we will be watching that that eight percent be be included uh, in addition to the five percent. John, why do you figure they are so adamant about uh, 
not uh, relenting on this Bill 124 issue. I mean, it's it seems to me that in this climate, there's no way they can settle for 1%. So why not even just take it off as an irritant? Because it's all a lot of people keep talking about. I, I think it's the, the reasonable thing for the time, right? And you'll see a change on that. It's just not today. The change will come soon, but I think we'll wait till all these other negotiations are taken care of. Well, but yeah, I mean, but why do you think that they would, you know, I mean, I get that he doesn't want to negotiate or give away a negotiating point, but it's just such an, an irritant and it, it's so not actionable at the moment. I mean, why do you think they're just taking that position? I, I, I think you just hit on it, right? It's all part of negotiations and positioning. And when we're on the other side of agreements, then all of this will go away. Uh, Bob, do you have a, a theory on that? Uh, I, I think they could be doing a better job handling uh, the issue of, uh, of nurses, particularly in the province. Um, I think we need to show some uh, good faith. Um, right now, um, nurses, they're burned out. Uh, nurses who are living along uh, the uh, the uh, U.S. border in Canada, many of them are starting to go work in U.S. facilities because they can get paid significantly more money or looking to do other options in healthcare. So we need to move at a much faster pace to deal with this. And we also need to spend the money that we said we're going to spend. Uh, the uh, Financial Accountability Office of the Legislature not the opposition, not the federal government. Uh, that office said that the government underspent in the healthcare area. I think it was 1.5 or 1.8 billion last year. So I think there are some legitimate questions to ask this government as it relates to healthcare, and I think they need to move quicker um, to uh, come to a resolution, particularly with nurses, but not just nurses, with doctors and with a variety of other issues in the health field. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds on this. Uh, the finance minister was asked about uh, the reserves, the money unspent. And then there started to be a little argument about, well, the the financial accountability officers numbers were, were not completely up to date. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he just kind of keeps saying, oh, well, we need to be prudent. Uh, we need to be prudent. Uh, Doris, is there something that, aside from repealing Bill 124, is there something they could do quickly, you think? Yes, yes, absolutely. I want to build just on one question about agency work. I do think that it's time that we actually investigate who owns and who gains uh, from the agency, uh, from the agencies and from the variety of apps that have been invented for agency work because some you would be surprised where they started. And that may start to unravel really why is it that we are allowing this to happen in addition to, to delaying Bill 124. In addition to that item is, of course, the issue of the internationally, recruit, uh, internationally educated nurses. As you know, Libby, we had chatted that 26,000 of them are ready to work in Ontario and here, and 14,000 of, of those are registered nurses, which are the ones that, you know, will help with the situation in ICU and in ER and step-down units, medical floors, surgical floors, operating rooms, etc., which hospitals are suffering from a tremendous deficit. The minister, Minister Jones, did send a letter uh, to the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the College of Nurses with a timeline of two weeks, that letter was sent last week, a timeline of two weeks to actually uh, send a plan. Now, we will be watching very carefully that letter because, as you know, we are pushing for that all the time. Uh, but uh, we don't want just a plan. We want to know that within six months to a year max, that backlog uh, will be completely, completely dealt with because patients, patients are dying out of, of, of basically shortage of uh, nurses. And that, that's irresponsible uh, and is, quite frankly, criminal in, the, in a time that you have so many waiting on the sidelines. We also asked the Premier 
and uh, the minister, and also uh, uh, briefly I spoke yesterday with the minister Jill Dunlop. There is a 35% increase, I think you heard me say this before, of applications to the baccalaureate program. Um, colleges, uh, a council of universities is ready to take more. Colleges and universities, in fact, are ready to take more students. They need the money to increase seats, to increase seats so that they can take uh, more uh, RPNs, more RLs, more nurse practitioners. They have taken, they have given not a penny for more nurse practitioners. And yet Minister Calandra, uh, and we are very pleased, uh, is moving ahead with the nurse practitioners for nursing homes with that desperately needed, and 75 of those are budgeted for this year. So we are looking forward to that money being out. So there are many solutions. Uh, there are many solutions, Libby. And the, the issue is yesterday, throne speech alluded to it. The budget took baby steps towards that. What we need is giant steps because the situation is dire and people are suffering, contagions are suffering the consequences. Yeah, Bob, you know, with the foreign trained nurses, and that's not something that happens overnight, but here is uh, something that I think is just crazy. Uh, there are numbers of them who are actually certified here, but the backlog in immigration is so bad that they don't have uh, the right to work because they're not permanent residents. I think that is a catastrophe that needs to be fixed. There's an example of, of an area where the federal and the provincial government should be working hand in hand uh, because this is clearly uh, a problem that affects uh, the province here. So I think we, we need to do, uh, I, I think on certification, there's a number of things. That is a problem that needs to be fixed. Two, I worry about handing over certifications uh, to the OMA as an example on the doctor side. They've been a union, to be blunt, that, that have done everything to prevent certifications for 30 years. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's sort of like... Um, the fox in the in the in the chicken coop or whatever I hen think house. I think that's their hen house. house. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so you know I I uh, I think that needs to be reviewed by the government. Sending a letter to the OMA saying, "Geez, we need to speed this up." That's not good enough. Uh, and by the way, I think this government has done better on this file than most in the last thirty years. But that's one that they're going to have to keep an eye on. Um, and uh, it's good to hear that uh, from uh, from uh, from our friend from the RNAO was saying that um, colleges and universities are ready to expand. I think that's great, but that does require money. Uh, it, it won't happen without it, and that's something that uh, hopefully we'll see reflected in uh, in in uh, in the budget when it's uh, fully tabled. Uh, okay. Yes, we'll hope so. I'm going to take a call from uh, Michael in Toronto. Hi, Michael. Are you there, Michael? I, I am, but I, I have um, have an issue with the housing, not you know with the medical situation. So, uh, okay, go ahead. Oh, he's gone. Okay, uh, people, you know, whatever is uh, has come out since yesterday. If you have an issue with, give us a shout. The numbers four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And we're focusing on healthcare here because most people are focusing on healthcare and we're seeing these emergency room shutdowns which are basically unprecedented certainly in the numbers that they are occurring and the frequency and it's really very worrying and we have these nurse shortages and all of these cascading problems and this after the government got elected with a big majority promising to get it done. Uh, Libby, so, Libby, yes, go ahead. Can I make a correction so you don't get slack? Okay. Um, about doctors. First of all, doctors are not under Bill 124. They were exempted. Uh, yes, I know. One. Yes. But more importantly, the letter did not go to the OMA, and I wouldn't want it to get slack of the OMA. The, the letter went to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which, like the College of Nurses, is the regulatory body of doctors. So it's arm's length from the OMA. I just want to make a correction for the sake of the public. Okay. I, I okay. appreciate that. Thank you. And you know what? Uh, I think that what you what you said before certainly applies to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. I, I, I'll I, go I, on I a limb. I, 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 
my sentiments are the same, same, but I stand uh, technically corrected. corrected. Yeah, it's the College of Physicians and and Surgeons. Yep. Um, and uh, I don't want to go there. I know that there are all kinds of other complaints about that particular body, but uh, hey, <laughs> we can only complain about so much at once. Uh, it's it's very interesting, you know. I hear from nurses from time to time, and. Uh, it's not just the pay. I mean, last week we had a call from a nurse who laid out exactly what the shortage means in terms of she's working double shifts. And, and uh, you know, usually there's a registered nurse up on the floors. This is a small hospital, but often there isn't one. Then they have only one or two people working in emergency and, and the whole thing just kind of cascades. And it really affects people. But uh, right now, let's take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi. Um, was there any discussion of how we're going to pay for all the needed health care? Uh, uh, you're saying that it's going to cost too much money? Well, yeah, and especially the long-term care. I mean, I'm one of the baby boomers. And as we come through the system, there's going to be a horrendous cost, and somehow it has to get passed back to those who are using the uh, the service. Um, you know, as I've mentioned many times, Kathleen Wynne at least had that figured out, but um, everybody otherwise, money can disappear, and people say, I only have OAS and maybe a little bit other, but oh, all my savings are gone. Well, um, we've got to do something to make sure that people are paying for what they're benefiting from. Uh, the the co- well, I don't have to tell you. I think the cost of long term care uh, it's it's not cheap. Yeah, but I mean, there's a significant subsidization. I'm fully aware of the of the private um, situation because I think I've told you yeah. I've got a a relative who's paying over three hundred thousand a year because he needs around the talk around the and he's paying for that personally, but. It's when people say, I don't have any money, that is the problem. And that's what Kathleen Wynne had figured out. Uh, okay, I'll see what our uh, panel has to say about okay. that. I would be happy to respond to that if you want, Lily. Sure, go ahead. Thank you for the comment. But uh, some of us actually, including me, came to Canada because we believe in universal access to health care. Those of us that make more money pay more taxes. Those that make less money, less taxes, and those on Ontario Disability Plan that cannot pay should get more money so they can survive and not live in other poverty. Uh, the reality is that when you look at the research, uh, in addition to the issue of fairness and, just, and social justice, is the issue of outcomes. And it, it's proven beyond doubt that not-for-profit delivery delivers better outcomes for less money than otherwise. So, you know, at the same time, the premier and everybody yesterday boosted that we have the lowest taxation, the lowest taxation, the lowest taxation in North America. That is true. Maybe uh, that's part of the problem of, and then we are paying to agencies for nursing, which we pay to the agency, not to the nurse, by the way, to the agency, double, triple the money, who knows how much they're making. That should be an investigation, how much the agencies are making. Let's use the money for our organizations, hospitals, home care, long-term care in the proper way, rather than what we are doing now, which is wasting money and getting less value for the money. Well, there's no question there's a a lot of uh, wasted money or not properly deployed money. Bob, I mean, this was, I think, what was it, the the biggest budget ever or certainly up there? Yeah, it's one of the largest uh, healthcare budgets, I think, in Ontario's history. Uh, look, there's, I, I think we need to have, dare I say it, and people can roll their eyes, but we need to have some almost like royal commission into healthcare now and say, where are we at? What are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? How can we spend money better? Uh, how can we share the system properly? I think this nonsense that you can't have, you know, that I can't get my shot from Shoppers Drug Mart because somehow or other, uh, it's not a public entity is ridiculous. I think we have to take a look at the various uh, elements of, of the healthcare system and, and figure out what makes the most sense today, uh, what's the most cost efficient, and move forward that way. I mean, haven't, haven't we uh, done that? I mean, don't we keep doing that, John? 
Well, we do. And I think that's one of the realities, right, is that it's an evolving situation, right? The last two years have been, um, the last two years have been, um, uh, you know, unprecedented. Nobody ever thought we'd go through what we've gone through. And then what we are is on the other side where the, you know, Ontario public decided who is best to manage for another four years. And uh, I, I got a couple of notes I think I, I want to make a point of here. One is that uh, after winning a larger majority government, uh, Premier Ford, instead of taking the summer off and going to the cottage, which is what almost every party of every stripe has done in the past in a similar situation, he's actually gone back to work into the legislature in August to get things going. And there's nothing in anybody's history that says government works fast. But at least if they're working, they get there quicker than not working. And the second point is, from everything we've talked about uh, this afternoon, the reality is the single biggest thing of the many solutions that are needed is for the federal government to open up the opportunity for all of those nurses who are here, certified, trained, waiting to work and waiting for the federal government to say, you are allowed to work. Yeah, but the immigration department is a huge mess. It was backlogged before the pandemic, and now it's out of con- completely. Well, you know. the government either needs to figure it out in the next few weeks or resign. Oh, right. <laughs> we'll wait for that. Um, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. Doris, last 20 seconds to you. Uh what can we expect? Will be there be sort of small improvements, or are we going to have more of the same? Directly with the federal government, and let me assure uh, the participants that actually they have moved large groups of nurses. The great, all of the government levels need to work together. The biggest backlog of nurses is those that need to be processed by the regulatory body. The smallest minorities, the ones that are waiting for immigration papers, and the federal government just recently processed 26 of them. I can put you to talk with them, Libby. They're enjoying their work. They're thrilled to work in Canada. We need to ask the federal government, the Minister of Immigration, to fasten it even more. And it's doable. This is why I say yesterday I was hoping getting done meant Bill 124 is gone. The internationally educated nurses that are eager to work here will be in by the regulatory body, by the feds, by everybody, by employers, hiring them, etc., and put money into the school so they can take those 35% more uh, applicants that are there and the 70% more nurse practitioners that have applied, because if the appetite is there, we know we need them, let's get it done. Okay, that's all the time we have. Uh, This is something I'm sure we're going to keep talking about. Thank you so much, Bob Richardson, Dr. Doris Greenspoon, and John Mikatishan. Thanks, Libby. Okay. We we are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, it's another thing that some stakeholders think will fix the system. And they're saying the problem is that we do not have good numbers, good tracking of where there are shortages, where there are actually people working and what the situation is and that what we need are better numbers when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canada does not have a national system for tracking or preventing shortages of nurses and other medical workers. And experts say that's part of the reason we're facing these emergency room shutdowns and service cutbacks. There's also no way to track how many medical professionals are working in various specialties or which areas, regions they're working in. The president of the Canadian Medical Association says this is what's standing in the way of meaningful improvement in Canadian history. 
sorry, in Canadian healthcare. So uh, is part of the answer to our problems yet another federal agency to track this? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Jean-Paul Soucy, a PhD student in epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health. Hi, Jean-Paul. How are you? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so how big a problem is this? I mean, we do have numbers of things like wait times from the Canadian Institute of Health Information and other agencies, but but how big a problem is this? I think it's a really big problem. Um, see, what we're missing here in Canada is a kind of a Canada-wide way to track just how much our hospital system is under strain. So I'm talking about really basic things like how many people do we have uh, in hospitals? How many people do we have uh, in the ICU? Uh, How many people there are there because of COVID? How many beds are missing because they don't have the staff to uh, support those beds? Um, These are just numbers that we really, we certainly can't get at a national level in Canada. In many cases, there's really There's really very little information, uh, even at the provincial or even the local level, on just how much our healthcare system is under strain um, and just how much we're we're, uh, missing uh, our capacity because of that. Is is that because uh, health systems are run by the provinces? I mean, why is that? Yeah, so certainly one of the the, uh, reasons why our our health data is so fragmented is because healthcare is viewed as the domain of the provincial governments. And as a result, we have, um, you know, each province has its own health system as well as we have, you know, uh, military health system, et cetera. And so we certainly do have a fragmented healthcare system that is considered the responsibility of the provinces. However, this is not an insurmountable problem. Um, I want to point uh, your listeners to the example of the United States. Um, near the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, they realized that they needed a system for tracking uh, just what I was talking about, hospital utilization, uh, how much COVID patients were contributing to that strain on the hospitals. Um, and so in uh, mid-2020, they actually rolled out a new system uh, that tracked that across every state. And in fact, almost every hospital, you can actually get those numbers uh, even even now today. Um and on a more or less real-time basis, you know, they're updated every single day. And the way that the United States did this, and they certainly have a more fragmented healthcare system than us, I think it's fair to say, is that they tied the receipt of federal money through the Medicare and Medicaid programs to reporting these statistics to the federal government. And as a result, they got this great, wonderful, publicly accessible data set on just how much the healthcare system uh, is under strain across the whole country that any citizen can access. But, they, but in- we don't we don't get our money directly from the feds. The feds send, send it to the provinces. The provinces do it. Absolutely. Um, and at the moment, there are very little in terms of uh, in terms of conditions attached to those tens of billions of dollars that are uh, transferred from the federal government uh, to the provincial governments for direct healthcare spending, as well as things like uh, research. Uh, medical research and things like that. Um, and I think that that is, frankly, an opportunity for per- perhaps um, being able to compel the provinces to put out standardized, timely data so that we can actually understand our healthcare system and how that's being put under strain and where the deficiencies are and where the gaps are. Because right now, the provinces themselves have very little incentive to actually put out these numbers so that we can actually compare what's going on uh, within provinces as well as across provinces. But uh, do you think we'd need yet another federal agency for this, or uh, can it be done with the resources we have now? There just has to be a, a requirement. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if we need another federal government agency. I mean, we certainly have a number of agencies now that are tasked with, um, constitutionally tasked with collecting statistics on a whole number of things, Statistics Canada. Uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, you mentioned the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. So I think that likely collecting these kinds of information would fall nicely within the mandate of existing organizations. Um, But what I think it is clear is that in terms of, look, we see all these stories of of ICU shutting down, emergency rooms shutting down, 
people dying in waiting rooms. We have all these tragic stories, but we really don't have the numbers really anywhere in Canada to actually go beyond those tragic stories. So, you know, when you have the here in Ontario, when you have the Minister of, of Health saying, well, actually, we don't have a crisis in our emergency rooms, it, it's really hard to argue beyond those anecdotes because we just really don't have those hard numbers to make the case. Is uh, Does this problem in any way relate back to uh, Stephen Harper, the former Prime Minister, cutting Statistics Canada in a meaningful way? Um, I don't think you can directly make a link there because, I mean, these data that we're talking about have, have never, well, have never been collected at the federal level. And so this would be kind of proposing a new initiative. Like, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the United States saw that in, in, in 2020 that they had this deficiency in, in tracking their hospital utilization during the pandemic. And in a few months, they managed to put that uh, federal system for tracking hospital utilization across the country together. You know, we've had Two plus years of the pandemic, which has um, which has you know caused huge problems in our hospital system, and we have not even not even made an attempt really to try to corral all those different sources of data across all the different provinces and put that out in a way that people can use and understand and and help to actually plan to improve uh, the healthcare system and really save the healthcare system, which I think we can say is kind of unraveling before our eyes. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, finally, is there an appetite for this? Because we see some provinces uh, being a lot more forthcoming than others. Some are downright secretive about statistics. And uh, when there's any suggestion that there are strings on their health care money, uh, the premiers start howling. Absolutely. It's uh, certainly not, uh, it's not uh, something that the provinces clearly want to willingly do um, many provinces at this point because look who wants to put out data that could be potentially embarrassing uh, or make you look um, poor or or worse than another another province's healthcare system right and so that's kind of why I think we need a, a federal intervention here to be kind of that that great leveler uh, so that we can actually get those numbers out of the provinces and so that they're comparable so we can actually figure out what's going on, figuring out what policies work, what policies don't. Uh, and as it, as it stands, or as you, as you say, there's really no appetite to put out these numbers um, uh, independent of, of, of any kind of legal obligation because um, I think it would, it would make a lot of, a lot of health ministers look uh, not so <laughs> not good. Great. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Well, I, I totally understand the hesitancy, but um, you know, we need a functional health care system, and, and right now we just don't have the data to, to really figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, so uh, let's see if this uh, idea goes anywhere. Thank you so much, Jean-Paul Soucy. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, uh, we want to hear from you. Are you worried about your finances because of what's going on with inflation, because of these predictions that we're headed into a recession? There's polling that says, yeah, most of us are, but uh, I'd like to hear from you. So uh, before we go to break, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Are you worried about your finances? According to a new poll by Yahoo Canada and Marrow Public Opinion, half of us are worried about affording the necessities. The necessities. A majority of us also believe that the country's headed towards a recession. And we also think that the Bank of Canada hiking interest rates will lead to a recession. Uh, that's something that economists generally do not believe, but I know that a lot of people do believe it. So inflation is tracking over 8%. Uh, but there was one bit of good news out of the U.S. today that it didn't go up. 
in July, it was on a big upward trajectory, and that seems to have stopped at least for now. So I would like to hear from you on uh, where you're at on all of this. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion, and Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Great to be with you. Hello. Hello. So, uh, John, let's begin with you. Uh, did any of this surprise you? Well, I've been doing the polling, as you know, for a long time. So I remember 1990 to 93 with the deep, you know, uh, recession that we had then. And if you fast forward to today, it looks nothing like that. I mean, we have, uh, you know, employment opportunities everywhere. We're not seeing, you know, for sale signs or cleaning out of inventory. And we, you know, clearly don't see the stagnation in the economy like we did then. So maybe it's going to come. But what I thought out of the poll that I did last week and the polling that I continue to do in both Canada and the United States is how comfortable people have become with the inflation. And what I mean is the numbers really didn't move from June to now. You would expect that people would say, you know, uh, it's it's getting worse. I'm pulling my horns in even more. You know, I, I think we, we are in a recession, and there was none of that. In fact, in the United States, my numbers, which will be coming out tomorrow, show Americans actually easing themselves and, and you know, off of their belt tightening. So I think that was it. The tenor of it was not so much panic or, you know, an affirmation that we were in a recession, but more of, yeah, you know what, I'm not, um, it's not hurting me a lot. I, I think I can get through this. But there is a sense that they'll watch it for the fall and see whether something comes of it. Uh, well, I think in the last month, at least in the States, the reason that that inflation didn't go up anymore was because gas prices dropped and they've dropped here too. How important is that, Moshe? Well, I, I think where we're seeing inflation is from three channels. One is through gas prices, one is through food prices, and the other one is through rapidly rising rent. So anytime you see those three things lay off, uh, I, I'm sure that's going to probably ease people's minds. In the case of falling gas prices, in some cases that's just because uh, governments are trying to remove gasoline taxes and things like that to, to try and help. Food prices generally aren't going to rise as much in the summer anyway because we're not going to be importing as many of our fruits and vegetables uh, because we have our, our growing season. And rents are one of those things that are continuing to rise rapidly, but they're generally only going to be seen once a year when you have to renegotiate your, your contract. And so many people might not have seen that yet, and so it might be one of those false sense of securities that somehow they escape the rising rents. Uh, but maybe sometime in the next five months they're going to find out that uh, they're not immune to it either. Uh, it, it's it's funny that you mentioned locally grown produce. Uh, I don't know when the last time you shopped for it. Uh, it's fabulous. I love it. But it's expensive if you want those Ontario grown strawberries or uh, even tomatoes or whatever else. Um, they're pretty pricey. John, I mean, food has really, it seems to me, gone up a lot. Yeah, it has, but it's affected different classes and people differently. So for our listeners, I mean, if you're on a fixed income and you've, you know, been hammered by inflation and also having your own RSPs drop in price, I mean, it, it can be a, a bit of a shift, but we're not going out entertaining ourselves at restaurants as much as younger people would have. So they're cutting back on that stuff, whereas maybe we're just a little more comfortable at an older age. What I think is really concerning to me in the numbers is that there is a group of people who are 18 to 34. They have in and of themselves dreams that they can't seem to get to, owning a house, saving, um, you know, paying off that school debt, getting appropriate raises to move ahead even in their, their own financial situations. That's not happening. And politically, they're even feeling disconnected in the country. So I think the group that's taking it on the chin the most are those who are in that younger age group, that group which is probably earning anywhere between, uh, I don't know, about 65000 downwards in household income. Um, they're in a bit of a pincer with the pricing, 
but it's also it's they just can't seem to reach out and get the things that the previous generation was able to get. And I think that's something I'm watching. Uh, I want to throw that out to the audience, uh, because we hear from a lot of people who are on fixed incomes. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you think that younger generations are being hit harder than you are, uh, that older people are doing better? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, um, yeah, John, uh, younger generations, and this not, I'm not, uh, complaining about it, but they do tend to go out more. And uh, Moshe just uh, cited rents. So we've seen the price of buying homes started to come down a little bit, but it's still uh, way out there. And uh, the result seems to be that rents are going up. Moshe. There's been a, there's been a disconnect, right? As a rough rule of thumb, I'd say that rental prices should be about Five percent of the value of a home. It's a rough approximation, but let's say that you have a home then that's worth half a million dollars. If you're going to rent it out, you should be able to get out five percent of that. That's about twenty-five thousand dollars, which is say two thousand dollars a month in rent. Uh, what you found though is that, especially in say Greater Toronto and maybe some of the other bigger cities in Canada, those housing prices have just completely disconnected from reality. Yet rents were remaining low, and and that multiple was not 5%, but it was down as low as like 3% or 2%. So uh, I, I don't know that we're going to see housing prices collapse in the way that they did in the U.S. a, a decade ago. Uh, and in fact, a little bit of higher than normal inflation can actually reduce the real value of your home. Even if housing prices just stay flat, inflation is going to reduce some of the purchasing power you could get from the equity in your home. But with rents rising rapidly, that gap is going to go from that Two percent, three percent that we disconnected from reality with, up to that five percent, and so it's more kind of a return to reality uh, than it is some sort of anomaly that rents are rising so quickly. It was really the last five to ten years that have been uh, the, the anomaly, and, and we're really just returning to normal. Uh, do you agree with that, John? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but I think the other thing in all of this is that there's again, a group of young people who are quite feeling that they're quite disconnected politically, that there's no voice for them. I think you'd agree that, you know, you've had, for instance, the Trudeau government promise that they're going to set up a housing account so that people can, you know, contribute to it for first home buyers and things like that. It hasn't come into effect yet. Like, it just seems to be out there and stagnant. The second thing is that when you go to purchase a house, and we're talking about homes, you know, that young people can buy, um, the threshold is now being raised in terms of the risk. And so they have to pay more or they're not going to be able to get into the marketplace. So it just seems to be getting further and further out. But there seems to be nobody who's looking after their interests. And that's politically, that'll be interesting to see where that group goes, because I would say right now, roughly 40% of the 18 to 34-year-olds in this country are very disconnected from the rest of us who, you know, are coping with inflation, but also seem to have a political voice anytime we want to turn to it. They they don't at the moment, and that'll be, I think, the, the group we want to watch. Well, yeah, I was just reading that a lot of them uh, are turning to be conservative voters and uh, they are liking the kinds of messages they're hearing from Pierre Poilievre. Sure. But that's a whole other topic. Let us take a call from Mark in Welland. Hello, Mark. Hi. I wanted to make a quick point and I'll get out of your road. In the media, I've yet to hear uh, an opinion that I have on where inflation's really being driven. Um, if you think about it, everything that we import comes by ship. Ships run on bunker fuel, which is a form of diesel. The price has doubled, in some cases over doubled. And with the tens and thousands of gallons they go through, you can imagine the rise in the cost of the goods coming into North America. And also, anything that's manufactured here or grown here, as you mentioned earlier, in the local produce, there's farmers' tractors run on diesel. The price is doubled here in Ontario. Once they ship it or any other commodity goes from port in this country or farm, 
that goes by train, which runs on diesel fuel. Yeah, I think. And uh, then finally, everything, all the groceries, the cars to the dealerships, everything we consume goes by tractor trailer. Okay, Mark, thanks for that. Yeah, we've uh, we've talked about the price of gas and the price of diesel before. Uh, is 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 that something that we're not taking into account enough, Moshe? You know, no, that that's exactly it. It's uh, it, and it's it's domestic as well as imports, so it, it's going to show up in price increases. And he, he's exactly right, uh, John. So we're seeing an easing in the United States, or at least mm-hmm. uh, uh, the increases have stopped. It's because of gas prices. Gas prices are down here too. Do you expect the same thing to happen here? Well, I don't know about. I mean. I don't know about inflation itself, but I think I think it really will now when people reflect on the United States and the statements that the Fed has made where they're now watching to see whether or not they are going to increase rates or hold on it. And also just, you know, the rally in the stock market. Canadians will be looking to see if something spills over or similar to that. Uh, again, I, I think the central banks are in a really tough position um, because they want to bring inflation down, but by putting the rates in, it affects so many other things that it might push us into some kind of a recession. This is an interesting showing where, in fact, inflation has gone up. I mean, it is, you know, 8.5%, but it's held. It's not gone further, and they attribute it to the higher rates. So I think it puts the banks on both sides of the border in a very interesting situation, but Canadians, I think it gives them a glimmer of hope that maybe they won't get that extra basis point raise uh, in the rates and that things will start to settle down. Well, uh, and Moshe, uh, just a final question here uh, about that belief that a lot of people have that it's actually the rate hikes that are fueling inflation. How significant is it? I mean, will that change anything if people believe it? That the rate hikes are fueling inflation? Well, yeah, it's definitely people, not rate hikes. <laughs> yeah, that, no, a lot of people believe that because... no. They're, they're, they're fundamentally that, wrong. Increases in interest rates do not fuel inflation. Increases in interest rates stop inflation. And that's exactly why the Bank of Canada is doing it. And so I'd actually disagree with John that I do think that we've got at least another full percentage point increase coming in Canada. Just how it's going to be parceled out in the final five months is going to be uh, for the Bank of Canada to decide if they want to do it in one shot or over the, the remaining few meetings of the year. Uh, but the fact is that interest rate hikes usually take about 12 to 18 months before they've had their full impact. And we only started increasing interest rates in February. So we've still yet to see the full force of higher interest rates in trying to stem inflation. John is right. It, it could have impact on a lot of other macroeconomic variables. Uh, and the analogy then that your listeners might appreciate is that it's probably more reminiscent of the stagflation phenomenon in the 1970s mm-hmm. than it is the uh, recession that we saw in the early 90s. And in the 70s, with high inflation and a stagnating economy, central banks back then were not as independent as they are today, but they had the same problems that they had to contend with, which is if you increase interest rates, that could have a whole lot of other damaging effects. And if you don't increase interest rates, then inflation really can get out of control, like we saw in the 1980s. And it can be something that uh, individuals' households become apathetic to. Okay. Uh, we are really totally out of time on this. Thanks so much, Moshe Lander and John Wright. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.